Well, dear friends, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Chronicles and chapter 34. We are in the second half of this chapter, beginning in verse 22, and we'll be reading to the end of the chapter. And let me bring us to the throne of grace before we begin. Heavenly Father, we plead with you for the enlightening power of your Holy Spirit to minister to us. Lord, would you grant us grace as we read your word, that our hearts would be ready to receive. Lord, would you conform us into the image of your Son, and would you lead us to see again our need of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would again turn to Second Chronicles 34, and we're picking up in verse 22 of this text. We remember that the book of the law has been found, and Josiah has sent men to go see or to go inquire of the Lord for him. And that's what we're reading about in this text. Here is the word of God. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokoth, the son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who you sent to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard His words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes, with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel, and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God, All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Well, thus far, God's holy word, and may he bless it tonight to us. 
Well, throughout the book of Chronicles, and particularly 2 Chronicles, we have kept, we've been seeing kings frequently who don't respond to the Word of God well. And I'll give you just a few examples of this. You perhaps remember the godly king Asa, who didn't finish well. A prophet, Hanani, rebuked him for relying upon a foreign power rather than on the Lord. And Asa threw the prophet in prison. And then there was Ahab. Ahab, you remember, had a bunch of yes-men in his court, guys supposedly who were telling him that the king would win a great victory. However, you remember Jehoshaphat perceived that these guys were brown-nosers. So he wanted a real prophet. Suddenly, Micaiah is called the man who never says anything good about Ahab. And sure enough, he says that Ahab is going to lose. Israel will fall. The shepherd of Israel will be laid low, which means Ahab's going to die. Micaiah gets slapped in the face for the word and then thrown in prison until Ahab returns. Only Ahab doesn't return. An arrow shot at random kills him. Then there's Jehoshaphat, that Judean king who should have known never to collude with Ahab. He too is rebuked by the prophet Jehu. Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Well, Jehoshaphat didn't slap him or throw him in prison, but he still doesn't listen. For later, he joins forces with Ahab's wicked son. And as we know, he sanctioned Ahab's devilish daughter, Athaliah, to be the darling princess of Judah. Over and over, this happens. On and on down to Joash, just a few chapters back, who heard a prophet speak against him. And Joash, the king, had the prophet stoned to death. There's not a good track record of responding to the Word of God. But with Josiah, brother, we're about to see an exception. When the book of Deuteronomy was found and read with all of its curses, Josiah doesn't ignore the Word, silence the Word. He doesn't shut the book and never read from it again. Instead, in the face of clear coming disaster because of disobedience, he shows a constancy of devotion throughout the rest of his days. I want you to note four things as we study Josiah and his response to God's Word. First, see with me, just simply looking to the Word in verse 22. Now, you remember last week as we studied Josiah's reign, the devoted king with his servants was sprucing up the temple, and they made a great discovery. Hilkiah the priest discovers the book, book of the law, most likely Deuteronomy. And while Deuteronomy is full of grace, recounting God's mighty hand and outstretched arm to deliver His people in Egypt how he attended them in the wilderness wanderings, it also makes very clear repeated threats of covenant curses that will come upon the disobedient. Well, when the courtier of the king, Shaphan, reads the book of the law to Josiah, it gripped his heart. And not the good stuff, not the merciful words, not simply the amazing declaration of the faithfulness of God. Rather, he was grieved by the present rebellion against what God had commanded. Josiah knew Judah's religious practices had been an affront to the Lord, and it had been that way, generally speaking, for nearly a century. Even though Josiah had set his heart to seek the Lord and spent considerable effort trying to get back to the things of God with the temple restoration, he knows now that Judah is ripe for judgment. Things have been so bad that the Word of God has vanished 
And while Josiah is pursuing reform, there's no sense he knew that Deuteronomy was missing. God had given a famine of the Word for decades, and disaster is looming. Well, Josiah is cut to the heart over these curses. But rather than ignore the Word, or put that book back in the back room and I don't ever want to hear from it again, rather than saying, you know what? That's great for previous generations, but we're going to do things our way. Josiah hears the threats. He takes it seriously. And he seeks immediate direction from God. He sends five ambassadors to inquire of the Lord for him in the kingdom. And we read in verse 22 that these representatives with Helkiah at the head went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, a guy with a, a pedigree, and he was a keeper of the wardrobe. It's probably referring to keeping the priestly clothing. A guy who's got to figure out how to get the stains of blood and lots of it out of the priest's garments. Now, some have wondered, knowing that both Jeremiah and Zephaniah began prophesying in the days of Josiah's reign, why does the king seek Huldah the prophetess? Well, it's hard to be sure, but I have two theories. First, Jeremiah and Zephaniah began their prophetic ministries during Josiah's reign, but we're not told exactly when they begin preaching. Josiah has 13 more years on the throne when he sends these men to Huldah. So I think it's very likely that Jeremiah and Zephaniah had not yet emerged as prophets, where at the very least they hadn't become household names. They were probably just beginning their ministry tied to the discovery of the book of the law, which is going to bring reform. But prior to this, it's not clear that any prophet has spoken after Manasseh had Isaiah cut in half. Part of the judgment of God under Manasseh was to take away the word, both the word in written form, it's been hidden in the temple and nobody's reading it, and the word, generally speaking, in oral form through a prophet. This was a very dark season. Now clearly at some point, Huldah the prophetess has spoken a word from the Lord. Otherwise, these men wouldn't have known to go to her. But it's interesting in such a dark season whom the Lord chooses to be His mouthpiece. When men in the kingdom of Judah, particularly prominent priests and kings, have ignored God's Word and run the kingdom into the ground, God chooses a lowly woman to speak the truth. Now, she's not a no-name woman. She's the wife of a guy who is mentioned by name and his father's mentioned by name. But this guy's pretty far down the list of servants. He maintains the priest's clothes. Guys in charge of the priest's laundry serve an important function in Judah, sure. But it would seem that the Lord, speaking through the lowly servant and the wife of that servant, maybe even lower than a doorkeeper, aims to show God's people in a time when the Word has been disregarded that God is going to use unlikely means to address His people. The Lord is using weakness, as the world perceives it, to be the vehicle of His great power 
his powerful word that rules the world and the word that announces judgment. Now more on that judgment in a minute. So just try to imagine the scene. These royal dignitaries in all their finely dressed apparel show up in pomp and circumstance to the wardrobe keeper's house, which happens to be right there in Jerusalem. This is my second theory why they go to this woman. The king wants direction now. And she's right there in the holy city. And surely it's a display of Josiah's great humility that at the threats of the word, the curses of the covenant, he's willing to send his advisors, the great spiritual leaders of the land, to the guy who runs the laundromat and even his wife to hear God's word through her. Josiah is not on a search for a celebrity pastor from some guy somewhere far away with a great name who can tell him what God says. No, you go find the person who can speak to us right now because we need the word now. And while other kings have bristled at a weak vessel speaking the truth, it's not Josiah. He doesn't exalt himself at all. His tearing of his clothes at the reading of the word wasn't for show. He has a humble and sincere heart. He's willing to get the word from whatever vessel the Lord will choose as long as it's the word that he gets. And brethren, I think that we should be struck in our hearts over Josiah's attitude. When the word of the Lord cuts us to the heart, what do we do? Notice Josiah doesn't try to quiet the conviction of sin by busying himself with other things. Nor does he wallow in despair and seek no help. No, the book of Deuteronomy that was read to him spoke of a God of mercy. A God who will, after the curse falls, hear from a penitent people, Deuteronomy 30. Or a God who says, I wound, I'll strike you for your covenant curses, but it's also I who heal. You see, Josiah views the Lord, I think, in a similar way to Peter viewing Jesus in John chapter 6. Maybe you remember the story. Jesus has been speaking a very hard saying, talking about a radical commitment to Him, that if you're going to follow Him, you have to eat His flesh and drink His blood. And He says these are spiritual words. They're not to be taken literally. But they convey a, a strong truth. You, have to, you must have absolute commitment to Me. You must be sustained by Me alone. And after Jesus said that, what happens? A host of people walk away from Jesus. Well, then Jesus asked the others, the disciples, do you want to leave too? Do you remember how Peter responds? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Josiah hears hard words from the Lord, but he alone has the words of life. And Josiah will look to God for the Word. You see, he receives the blow against sin and he's willing to be struck in his conscience and not suppress that truth, but seek the Lord. Lord, tell me what to do. Lord, tell me how to live for You. Lord, show me the way of loyalty. Brethren, is this what we do when the Word cuts us to the heart? Do we humble ourselves to receive it through a weak vessel, a guy on a Sunday night just talking to you and talking to you and talking to you? Are you still willing to hear it? Do you tremble before the Lord and inquire of God for clarity? Brethren, are we a humble people? 
Are we willing to go to the God who wounds us? That that God might heal us. Josiah believes there's nowhere else to turn. What about you? And secondly, see with me. Looming disaster. So the five dignitaries of the king with Hilkiah at the head, they walk into the living room of the laundromat owner to listen to his wife. And they tell her of the king's desire and of the king's distress. She responds with a two-part message. And we get part one here. And it's rough. Look at verse 23. She said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Now I just want you to stop. Note here the way she addresses the king. Huldah doesn't say, tell the king. Now she'll say that in part two. But the opening message is a two by four between the eyes. You go tell that man. People are really careful how they speak to kings. But the Word of God, the God who is the King, is coming to just a man. Kings are exalted before men, but they are mere men before God. There's a story of a Scottish preacher named Robert Bruce in the late 1500s and an exchange with King James V of Scotland, who would later become King James I of England, of the King James Bible fame. Bruce was preaching at St. Giles in Scotland, and seated up in the royal gallery was the king. Well, pushing off the unease of his conscience over the very pointed preaching, he started talking to his courtiers who happened to be with him. Loudly. So loudly, he could be heard down in the pulpit. Well, Bruce stopped speaking until the king got quiet. And then it happened again. And again, Bruce stopped speaking. And then it happened a third time. And Bruce then reportedly declared, and I quote, It is said to have been an expression of the wisest of kings. When the lion roars, the beasts of the field are quiet. Well, the lion of of the tribe of Judah is now roaring in the voice of his gospel. And it becomes all the petty kings of the earth to be silent. And yes, he kept his head after he said that. But you get the point. When the king of kings speaks, the kings, I don't care who you are, kings among men, it's time to be silent. You need to recognize that you're petty, you're small, you're lowly creatures who need to listen to God. Tell the man, she says. This is another way I think the Lord is aiming to produce humility in Josiah. And by extension, humility in all the other royal officers. They may stand before the wife of the wardrobe guy, but the Lord of hosts is speaking. And they better listen because the news is bad. She says, and there's a repetition in verse 24 of thus says the Lord, to reinforce the authority of the word. She says, behold, I will bring disaster. It's more literally, I am bringing disaster. The disaster is future, yes, but it's a settled reality in the divine plan. Disaster is coming upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. And why are all these curses falling? 
Verse 25, because Yahweh says, they've forsaken me and they've made other God or offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. In other words, Yahweh is saying this decades long idolatry has been a purposeful rejection of me, their God. It is obstinate rebellion. The Lord demands exclusive worship. But Judah doesn't care. She forgot Yahweh altogether and acted as if He doesn't even matter. So the Lord now says, verse 25, Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. That verse is chilling. This is a preview of hell. The unquenchable fire is about to fall. And nothing can stop it. What a terrifying word of judgment. It's similar in kind to what the Lord told Noah was coming and what the Lord told Lot was coming. Judgment is inescapable. There will be no relenting. If you thumb your nose at God, if you exchange His glory for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who should be forever praised, if you persist in darkness despite all of my warnings, then the day will come when you will be given over to destruction and nothing will stop it. Why is that? Because God is faithful to His Word. We often sing, Great is Thy faithfulness when we're thinking of the comforting promises of the Gospel, don't we? God is faithful to save the one who calls upon His name. But brethren, God is also faithful to curse those who recklessly and persistently violate His covenant. Indeed, if you remember, the very ceremony of Making, or better, cutting a covenant depicts this very thing. When a sacrifice is made in a covenant, the people would chop the animal in half, set the pieces opposite one another, and pass between the pieces. And as they did so, they were making a pledge. Let it be done to me as to these animals if I don't keep my word. Well, Judah has broken the covenant in spades. And the Lord has said, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. My seminary professor, Ralph Davis, would say it like this, God is faithful and it'll kill you. You need to remember the faithfulness of God to all that He says. There's a temptation for us, especially the Sunday evening crowd, to dismiss this word. But brethren, we must not. Jesus makes it plain to us that disaster looms if we love our sin. If your right hand causes you to sin, what do you do? You cut it off and you throw it away from you because it's better for you to enter into heaven with one hand than to have two and go to hell the unquenchable fire. There's a great day coming that will be a leveler of all people. Revelation 6 tells us the great men of the earth, kings, generals, the rich, the strong, they will gather themselves with the slaves and the free and they'll hide in caves and they'll call out to the mountains to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. But it won't work. 
The sinner without refuge in the Lord will perish. What is one to do in the face of such a chilling judgment? There's only one thing to do. Run to the Lord for refuge. Pray that He would hide you in the cleft of the rock, that He would keep your soul. Run to the only Savior of sinners, the Lord Jesus, who redeems His people from the curse. Because we have to understand tonight, brethren, we too are under the curse of the law. Galatians 3, which only quotes Deuteronomy 27, Cursed is everyone who doesn't do everything written in the book of the law. What will you do if you don't have a covering to save you from that curse? You will perish. Matthew Henry puts it this way, those that would not be bound by the precept will be bound by the penalty. You may not pay attention to what God tells you to do, but I'm telling you, you will pay attention to the penalty as it comes upon you. Either you will give heed to what God requires or you will face the curse. That's the hard news. But then there's part two of this message. See in the third place, looking to the heart. Huldah now has a note of mercy after the wrath for the king specifically. Middle of verse 26, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God. You remember when Josiah heard the curses read? What did he do? He tore his clothes. Evidently, he also wept before the Lord and these weren't crocodile tears. He took God's threat seriously. His heart was broken and contrite over the sin of the nation. He was truly penitent. And because of this, though the judgment is unavoidable, it's going to come, it will yet be delayed. Look at verse 28. Josiah is told, Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I bring upon this place and its inhabitants. In other words, Josiah's godly sorrow, this yearning to flee sin and honor the Lord, is blessed by God. While the people in Josiah's realm remain corrupt, when Josiah is gone, they will go right back to their idolatrous practices as though Josiah were never there. It means that as it was with Hezekiah and Manasseh when he tried to exercise reform, the humility found in the king is not in the people. Nevertheless, due to Josiah's lowliness of heart, he will be permitted to die in peace. That is, God will bring him to his death before disaster comes, before Babylon begins to assault the people of God. And what a kindness is that this is for Josiah. He won't see enemies attack the holy city. He won't see pillaging and plundering. He won't witness children slain or dying of famine because of siege. He knows these horrors are coming because that's what the curses say. But the Lord spares him from living through it. It reminds me of comforting words Isaiah spoke to his generation a couple of years back. Amidst a sea of iniquity, the Lord said through Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, 1 and 2, the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace 
They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. Now that word does not promise us that every believer will be removed from calamity. We would love that if that were the case. We see our world wrought with wickedness. And sometimes we just want the Lord to take us out now before we see it get worse. That's what Josiah is experiencing. But I think this does give us a general principle, which is a mercy to the godly. Sometimes the Lord is pleased to snatch us out of this world and bring us to Himself before the terrors strike. But what you can absolutely count on is if you live to see the terror, if you are in the Lord, no terror will come to you. God will not permit you ever to be separated from His love. Now, why is He doing this particular mercy for Josiah? Well, the text tells us it's because his heart was tender or soft. It's the opposite of a hard heart. Josiah received the word with meekness. He believed what God said, and he bowed to it. To quote another Isaiah promise, though the Lord inhabits the heavens, He's enthroned above all things. He, heaven is His throne, earth is His footstool, we might say. To whom does the Lord look? He says He looks to the One who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at His Word. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And here's the thing is, the Lord knew what was in Josiah's heart. He knew his heart was tender. What does he see when he looks at our hearts? You remember the reconciliation that Peter and the Lord have? And Jesus is asking him that really penetrating question. Simon, do you love me? Peter's answer is, Lord, I do, but do you remember how he puts it? Lord, you know that I do. And then he concludes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I do. What does the Lord know about what's in our hearts? He knows if we're truly receiving his word or not. He knows those who are flying to the good shepherd and resting their souls in his care. And if we run to the God who is good and who is ready to forgive and who is full or abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon Him, brethren, we too will find mercy with the Lord. Or again, as Matthew Henry puts it, those that fear God's wrath the most are the least likely to feel it. If you fear God's wrath the most, you're the least likely to fear it. What does he mean by that? He means if we take sin seriously like Josiah did, if we run to the offended God and plead for mercy and cling to Him, we will have peace in our soul. Well, is that what we are discovering? Because we've run to Christ. You know, brethren, we live in a godless time. That's no news to you. Godlessness is pervasive in our pagan society, but it's increasingly pervasive even among the professed people of God. And it reminds us of Jesus' words in Matthew 24. Jesus tells us, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of the many will grow cold. 
when lawlessness abounds, it drags down the loyalty of many who claim to serve the Lord. Well, we pray against the godlessness around us and we aim to stand for truth in the church, but do we actually grieve the pervasive sin that merits God's wrath? And do we endure not drifting away from the things of God because lawlessness is seemingly always there? Do we run to God? Do we cling to God because there's mercy with our God? In wrath, He remembers mercy. And indeed, He delights to give it. And that's what He gives to Josiah. And then finally, see with me, loyalty expressed. After Huldah's words of wrath and mercy were told to the king, Josiah took action to see the nation devoted to the Lord on his watch. Verse 29, he gathers the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king goes up to the house of the Lord, but he does it, verse 30, with the assembly of men. It appears Josiah calls for a great covenant renewal ceremony. Now Hezekiah had done something like this a few chapters back, but that was a hundred years ago, which means that God's people had not renewed their covenant loyalties, gathered in assembly, and listened to the Word of God for a long time. But Josiah here, functioning like Moses, who when he first received the book of the covenant, read it to the people. Josiah, verse 30, with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small, Josiah read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Now you get the strong impression though Josiah knows disaster is coming, that Josiah's attitude is this. While I have breath in my lungs as king, this people will serve the Lord. So he brings about this covenant renewal. That's the sense in verse 31 of the, of the king making, or better, cutting a covenant before the Lord. There was a fresh sacrifice, a renewed commitment to serve God or face the curses of God. And then Josiah expresses the depths of his own loyalty, covenanting, verse 31, look at it, the details, to walk after the Lord and to keep His commandments and His testimonies and His statutes with all of his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. These are all expressions found in the book of Deuteronomy. And they convey the thoroughness of commitment that God requires. In essence, Josiah is saying, I will live by the book. God's word will guide my steps. I will devote my heart to do what the Lord says. Well, brethren, this is what the Lord, our God, requires of us. He demands our all, our love and loyalty, meticulous attention to what He has spoken out of a heart of affection for Him. Now, He doesn't call us to show Him loyalty that we might earn brownie points with God, that we might get God to like us. No, the pattern of Deuteronomy is this. I have loved you when you were unlovable. Deuteronomy 7. I chose you. Deuteronomy 9. I set my affections on you. Deuteronomy 10. I redeemed you and have lavished my mercy on you and I have called you to be my people, so respond to me with love and loyalty. Deuteronomy 5 and 6 and 11. The Gospel of Jesus tells us the same thing, doesn't it? Grace given makes demands. 
the Lord shows undeserved mercy. I loved you when you were unlovable. I redeemed you. Therefore, live for me. Well, Josiah gets it. He's all in to serve the Lord. And he ensures under his leadership, the rest of the nation will be all in too. Like he presses them. Verse 32, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. I think this is a as for me and my house moment. Josiah cannot give these people new hearts. He knows that. But he will not tolerate as their king disloyalty to the Lord while he reigns. Indeed, he will take away all access to false religion. Take note of the word all in verse 33. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God all his days. They did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. It's pretty clear, isn't it? All of his heart given to all of God's statutes, all his days, and all the abominations would be taken away. Was that the kind of loyalty that we express to our God? Lord, you get all of me to all that you require, all of my days. And what a great leader Josiah is here. You know, he models to us a way to motivate people to godliness. He doesn't just tell them they're supposed to be godly. He's godly in front of them. Isn't that the apostolic pattern? We're going to see Paul imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is that our determination? Do we resolve not to give God halfway obedience, which is not obedience at all? Or do we resolve to love Him and honor Him as long as we live in this life? I'll close with this. You remember how the Apostle Paul responds to the Gospel or tells us to respond. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies, plural, of God, that is in view of everything that I've told you in Romans 1-11, to I appeal to you then to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or maybe better, your reasonable service. It's the only service that makes sense. Give God everything. Why? Because you're not your own. You were bought with a price. May that be how we live unto the Lord our God. For then let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that You would find our hearts tender to Your Word. Lord, we pray that we would not give You lip service, but that our hearts would serve You sincerely. That we would grieve our sin and the sin of Your people. And that we would search and see how You would have us to live in a way that pleases You. Oh Lord, work such grace in our hearts. Grant to us the spirit of conviction and supplication that we would seek You and be guided by Your Word. And we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.